today's reading uh, can be found on page six, and it comes from First uh, Thessalonians chapter five, verse twenty-three through twenty-four. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful; he will surely do it. La lectura esta mañana viene de la primera carta a los tesalonicenses, capítulo 5, versículos 23 al 24. Que Dios mismo, el Dios de paz, los santifique por completo y conserve todo su ser, espíritu, alma y cuerpo, irreprochable para la venida de nuestro Señor Jesucristo. El que los llama es fiel y así lo hará. It's good last week to return to be with you, uh, but today it's good to be back in the pulpit, uh, to be right here. And it was a, a, a joy and um, gave us a lot of confidence knowing that you were in good hands with a great lineup of guest speakers. I'm so grateful that they were willing to package together a series of messages in the book of First Thessalonians, uh, wonderful, rich things to learn from that letter of Paul's. And I do long to share various reflections over time, not all at once, with you about things that I've been reflecting on, praying over, and learning. Um, as many of you have asked, how was your time away? Uh, would love to weave that in, and even today a little bit. But what we're going to do today is wrap up that series in 1 Thessalonians. And so we're looking at these two verses that come at the end of the letter before we move on to another series next week. So let's pause and pray together as we finish this fine book. God, we thank you for giving us your word, for speaking to us, for continuing to speak to us through your word. Give us your Holy Spirit now. Give us open ears. Give us open hearts, open lives. Make us malleable and supple of heart so that you might change us. We want to be changed. So come and do that work. Do what we can't do ourselves, what only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been my joy recently to have the responsibility of putting my daughter Elena to bed. On many occasions, this activity or ritual each evening results in something that fills my heart. It's a wonderful responsibility and duty, yes. But every now and then, like last night, I'll receive a great gift, a big hug, and warm words like, Daddy, I love you so, 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 so much. A joy. But I've also been noticing that too often, more often than I'd like, my evenings with my daughter are a little bit rough, a little bit tricky, a little bit bumpy. Maybe it's because we're tired at the end of long days, both she and I. Maybe it's because we're trying to wind down together and mostly a preschooler doesn't want to sleep and an adult, an adult really does. Mostly, maybe because there's suddenly all these different things that need to take place before she goes to sleep. But oftentimes, there's acting out. I'm talking about her dad. Uh, there's tension, sometimes even the raising of a voice. And oftentimes, I've 
found myself walking out the door, closing it behind me, shaking my head, saying, that didn't end like I intended it to. Those final words that I spoke were words of near accusation, even almost condemnation out of frustration. It started to concern me as I've noticed it because last words matter. Last words matter. Whether if it's a goodbye or a good night, you know how it is. Last words linger sort of like an echo in our hearts. Sometimes they sum up our relationship with an individual as we depart. Sometimes they simply sum up our day's interaction with them. They are words that linger in the other person's absence. Sometimes they're even a substitute for their presence. Last words matter. Which is why it's so stunning and so helpful to notice that last words matter to God as well. And to notice that God is very different from me. Because God's last words to his people are always words of grace. God's last words to his people are always words of grace. It's why the benediction at the end of our gathered worship together is so important. Before you leave from this place, what's the last thing you hear from the heart of God? A word of blessing which is what a benediction is. This is what we find at the end of the book of Thessalonians, and in fact, at the end of so many different books in the Bible. A letter that God had inspired that he wrote to his people in Thessalonica, which was an ancient city in Greece. This grand and great letter where the Apostle Paul, in this way and that way, addresses this central question, what does it mean to live daily in light of the return of Christ? You can go back to our website and listen to the different messages in this series related to that topic. But here we are, Paul finishing his letter to this church, and he closes it with a last word that is a benediction, a blessing. Actually, it's a prayer. It's a prayer that the people of the church would be a growing people, a whole people, and a secure people. It's a prayer, in fact, for you, for us, that we would be a growing people, a whole people, a secure people. And that's what we're going to look at here in these two short verses, one piece at a time. Number one, it's a prayer that we would be a growing people. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul is praying for spiritual growth. We find that in this word here, sanctify, which might mean nothing to you. It's a hard word sometimes to understand or unpack. Literally, it means, now may the God of peace himself make you more and more holy. Well, you say, well, that doesn't help me either because I don't know what it means to be holy. The word holy simply means set apart very, very different. What it means is to be like the wondrous difference that Jesus embodied in his life here on earth. 
In other words, to sanctify means to be made into the moral likeness of Jesus himself. To be changed. To be conformed into his beauty. Into his life-giving love. Paul repeats the same idea, but in different words in the next sentence when he says, may you be kept blameless. My friend and colleague Scott Sauls, whose passage I read just earlier, in another occasion wrote this, sanctification is this, when we love what God loves and when we hate what God hates more than we did a year ago. Let me say that again. This process of being sanctified is what? It's loving what God loves and hating what God hates more than we did a year ago. It's this process of growing to be like Jesus. And you'll notice here in this letter, Paul is praying for all kinds of spiritual growth. If you were to flip back and see all the ways in which Paul references ways in which he's praying they would be sanctified... He's talking about learning how to suffer righteously and to endure and persevere in the face of pain, growing in that way. He's talking about resisting greed and glory-seeking and people-pleasing. He's, he's talking about enlarging your faith, growing in prayer, becoming more loving, becoming more gentle, becoming less idle. Uh, sharing the gospel with each other, he talks about. Devoting yourself daily to your work, your daily work with diligence. Becoming more receptive to the word of God when you read something in the Bible. Do you actively follow it? Becoming uh, more comfortable and becoming, no, no, not more comfortable, becoming one who gives more comfort to others in their times of trial. He talks about growing in our avoiding sexual brokenness and sin, uh, learning to grieve with faith, with hope, making peace in the face of conflict, learning to flee from evil, refusing to repay evil for evil, learning to express gratitude towards God and experiencing more and more joy in the gospel. These are all these sorts of ways in which Paul gives a prayer that we would continue to grow. And you can add some more of your own. How would you like to grow? Do you know that God longs for your growth? Here is a prayer, even a blessing, that God himself will sanctify you completely. He will change you. This passage, in fact, it raises at least three questions that are worth pondering. First of all, do you want to change? We're, we're talking about change. We're talking about being a changing people. We're talking about growing spiritually. Do you want it? Do you want this? Sometimes I'm not sure we actually want to grow and change. Sometimes we're offended by the idea that we would need to improve. Sometimes we don't even want to hear it. We get defensive. Jesus encounters a paraplegic who was disabled for 38 years and who was waiting to be healed. And in almost stunning fashion, Jesus approaches him. And one of the first questions he asks him is, do you want to be healed? You'll find that in the book of John. Do you want to be healed? 
one thing I realize about myself is that I like the idea of making progress, but I don't like needing change because I like to believe that I've always and only already arrived. Sometimes saying I do want to change can be the most humbling thing, can't it? Because it means you're admitting you're not there yet. You're not all that you need to be. You're not all that you ought to be. I've been realizing even the last couple weeks how hard that can be sometimes, even how embarrassed I feel that I'm not a more mature Christian than I am, that I'm not actually as, as skilled a pastor as I feel like I ought to be, where there's almost this process of having to unpack this, this deep secret desire to be ready-made. And maybe you hear it too. You fail or you hurt or you confront a shortcoming, and maybe the first words out of your mouth in your heart is, I should be better than this. I shouldn't have made that mistake. Denying your need to change, to grow. When we're not able to confront this openly and joyfully, then you really start hiding ways that you're weak. You start to hide ways that you are a work in progress. Dear friends, do you hear what this passage implies? You are a work in progress. I am a work in progress. You are a work in progress, and God loves you that way. Secondly, another question, not just do you want to change, but will you accept God's help? Will you accept God's help? You, you notice Paul actually emphasizes God's willingness and ability to help you. He says, God himself, may God himself sanctify you completely. The process of change and growing, it requires supernatural grace. It can't just be meted out by sheer willpower or human decision or just by beating yourself up again and again and again whether if it's overcoming a distorted view of your own sexuality or if it's overcoming your inability to stick to a certain task and work at it day after day and year after year with gospel diligence. Whatever it might be, whichever way in which you need to grow, do you know that you have the supernatural grace of Jesus available to you? Do you know that you can change? Sometimes, even if we want to change, we're not convinced that we can. Maybe you're stuck in some pattern of behavior. Maybe you've tried different methods of overcoming that addiction or that area of vice. Maybe you're convinced nothing's ever going to change. Maybe you've just thrown up your arms, thrown in the towel, and given up on the prospect of being something else. But sometimes, I think that's because we can only imagine the process of change only being totally dependent upon me. We give up because we realize we've come to the end of our ability to change ourselves, and so we give up. But guess what? What if there's another ability beyond the end of your own ability to change yourself? What if there's God's ability to change you? What if there's the power of the gospel? What if there's the commitment of your heavenly father? 
What if it makes a difference for you to start to think about and to believe that God is personally committed to you and your change? That when he sent his son to bleed and die and to be torn to shreds for you, it wasn't just for your forgiveness, it was also for your transformation. That if God would make such a sacrifice for you, if Jesus would lay down his life to forgive you and have you, why wouldn't he finish the job? Why wouldn't he continue to be invested in your life to help you in those different areas of spiritual growth? To think that God is personally, covenantally committed to your transformation he doesn't outsource or delegate your life to someone else. God himself, Paul says, will provide for your needs for change. Which then starts to give you the freedom to admit that you're weak. To admit that you do need change. That you do need help to change. One thing I've been thinking about over the last several weeks is I'm so glad for you. I'm so glad to be a part of a church, to be pastoring a church that is willing to embrace a flawed pastor. It gives me life, and I hope through me, in turn, it also gives you life to know that this can be something of a gospel-safe place for broken, wounded, and change-needy people like me and like you. Can we be that together? Third question, not only do you want to change, will you accept God's help, but thirdly, do you know the struggle is not forever? Some of you are running out of gas. Some of you are running out of commitment. But do you hear Paul say in the second half of this passage, now may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking forward to the return of Jesus when all things are going to be made right, be made perfect, including you. Paul prays knowing that this process of change will be fully accomplished, fully accomplished, completed at the coming of Jesus. Is this perhaps hope that some of you need today to fight on and battle on for another day, for another week, to dare to return maybe to a struggle, a fight against some vice or sin or failure that you've sort of put on the back burner, but maybe to come back again to say, look, if what's ahead of me is joy for eternity, then I'm willing to struggle with this for a little while longer. Because what it means is that the worst of all of our spiritual struggles, intense though they may be, at their worst are only a couple decades long preparing us for all of eternity. First, Paul offers a prayer for changing people. Secondly, he offers a prayer for whole people. W-H-O-L-E, whole people. You notice Paul says, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our whole spirit and soul and body are in the mind of Paul, in the mind of God, as being the object of his changing grace. 
Throughout the New Testament, spirit and soul, these words are used as virtual synonyms. They basically mean the same thing, referring to the inner life of a person. Our spirit isn't essentially different from the part of us that we might call our soul. They're just two parts of our humanity, our bodies and our spirit and our souls. Then why does Paul choose three different words here? to talk about who we are as human beings. And I think it's this because he's emphasizing that God is committed to redeeming the entirety of our humanity. All of you, every part of you, he is applying nothing less than the eternal grace of Jesus to make you more like Jesus, both your body and your soul. In fact, scholars will note that the ancient Greek behind this sentence is actually a little bit awkward. It could actually be translated like this. May you be preserved blamelessly so as to be whole. Why does this matter? This vision of God's concern for your wholeness. It's because we live fragmented lives. Because we pretend that we are neither body nor soul together, but rather we are different component parts. And some of us have strengths in pouring in concern to one part of our humanity and others have strengths to the other part of our humanity. In other words, some of us actually are only concerned with physical bodily improvement with no concern whatsoever to your spiritual life. Uh, Maybe you're someone that actually hits the gym consistently, uh, maybe even obsessively. Uh, Maybe you're someone that is very concerned about caring for your body. Or maybe in other ways, in the physical realm of life, maybe you're very concerned about financial responsibility. It's not body improvement, but financial improvement that's often in your mind. But you have no concern for your spiritual life, your soul. Maybe you're barely even aware that there is such a thing as your soul. Others of us have the opposite problem. This is a problem that we find in many in the church. This idea that we are, yes, of course, spiritual beings, but we don't really live with a body. There's a neglect of the physical parts of our humanity in a way that destroys our wholeness. And oh, how important it is for us to be people that recognize that God intends to transform us, soul and body, body and soul, all of us, to make us complete people, not disintegrated, but reintegrated in Christ again. And so whether if it's in the realm of our money or our material possessions, to take seriously this idea that Jesus talks about often, that what you do with your possessions and your financial resources says a lot about the priorities of our hearts, that there's a connection between the two. And so God therefore cares about what your checkbook and your bank account look like. He cares about seeing that his values and his heart is reflected in the way that we relate to our money. But more than that, How about the care of our physical body? Do you understand that what you do with your body is part of your discipleship in Christ? It's part of what it means to grow spiritually, yes. 
as a follower of Christ. And one area, this is one area that I've been wrestling with over the past couple of weeks because I'm terrible at it. You want to grow with me in this? To, to think that whether or not you are giving yourself adequate sleep is actually a part of your responsibility as a Christian saved by grace. That it's, a, it's an actual part of discipleship to care about the body that God has given you, that God in fact found important enough to give his son towards that he might be raised again so that that very body of yours also might be raised to new life for all of eternity. He's not discarding your physical being. Why are you? To think also that our disregard to our physical well-being oftentimes is a mark of spiritual arrogance, something I've been working through as well. Uh, what gives you the belief that you can actually live on much less sleep and less Sabbath and less rest and less physical restoration than the average human being? What makes you believe that you can get away with it without it actually chipping away at your life and your relationships? It's, it's arrogance, in fact. It's, it's a quiet belief that you're a cut above the rest, that you are in, in some ways superhuman. But it extends beyond our sleep, including to the things that we consume with our bodies, even our eating habits, whether if it's junk food or fast food or too much food or too little food, whether if it's things we take into our body, whether if it's smoking or doing drugs or whatever it might be, to take seriously what the Bible says when it calls our bodies the temples of the Holy Spirit, the living place, the home address of God himself. How are you going to treat his home? Of course, Washington, D.C. so often can be a place that totally disregards this, that puts this in sort of the, 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 the luxury category, whether if it's because you're having such a hard time making ends meet that you're having to carry multiple jobs, or if you're just in the sort of job or life calling that you are working in a way that is literally killing your body, if not also your sanity. What can it look like for us to take seriously this vision that God has given his son to restore us to human wholeness, body and soul. It's a prayer for changing people, a prayer for whole people. And third and lastly, we're looking here at a prayer for secure people. A prayer for secure people. Paul finishes up here in verse 24 with this word, one of the grandest promises that you'll find in all the New Testament. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. You're gonna change. If you're in Christ, you're going to change. And you're going to change both in soul and in body. The Bible doesn't prescribe for us 
how quickly that's going to happen or when that's going to happen, but it does tell it it will happen and it will one day be completed. As Paul himself says elsewhere in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. To hear Paul say, he who calls you, which is a word, that, uh, an expression he uses for those who are called from death to life spiritually. A calling, it's someone who hears the voice of Christ, his saving voice, his voice of grace, to receive these words of salvation. It's simply a, a language, it's a phrasing that refers to people that have become Christians who've been rescued, who've been forgiven, who have already experienced the transforming grace of God. God who has called you into his own kingdom and glory, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12. This God who has called you is faithful to do what Paul here is praying and promising that God will do. He is faithful. He's faithful to you. He keeps his promises. He never breaks any one of his covenant commitments to you. Again and again, it's the promise of the Old Testament that your great hope in this process of spiritual growth, dear friends, is not only God's faithfulness to you, but his faithfulness to himself. That he's committed not to break his word. That he's committed not to being a God that lacks integrity. A God that shifts and changes, who flakes out on ways in which he has begun working on your life. It's why in the Old Testament prophets, again and again, God says, I swear by myself. Because who else is he going to swear by but by himself? I'm going to do it. Where he says again and again, as he does in Isaiah 44, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this from long ago? Did I not foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? I promise you, based on my character, based on myself, based on the down payment of the blood of my son. If I've given him to you for your salvation, why would I not continue to finish this good work in you? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Call to mind whatever came to mind earlier when we were talking about being a changing people. What's that area of spiritual growth that's been nagging at you? Or maybe the thing that you've set aside and put on the back burner. Maybe that you've given up on or given up hope that you possibly might be able to change. Where you almost can't dare to believe that you might actually be conformed to the moral likeness and the moral beauty of Jesus in every way. What's that one area? What's that two areas that is nagging at you? What are those areas that are hard for you to believe? That grace of transformation really is available to you. Bring it to your mind and hear the promise of God. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 
He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Are you in Christ? Have you been cleansed by his blood? Does the Holy Spirit live in you? Do you want to change? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So do you know that this prayer lingers over your life? Do you hear it in this word, a last word, a lingering word in your heart, that this is your God, a God who is making you a growing people, a whole people, a secure people girded by the promise of God. Dear friends, I'm with you. God is at work in you, in me. Here's our great hope. He who calls us is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. We ask that you would help us now to believe. To believe the grand promises of Jesus. That you're helping us to change and grow. That you're making us whole. And that we have all the security of Christ in this endeavor to become more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.
be seated. Garrett, did you know that I was preaching on this text when you chose that song? I, I never noticed. <laughs> Coincidence? I mean, what a perfect song uh, to follow up after this passage, uh, the faithfulness of God. That happens often, by the way. Uh, God, God just giving us the perfect song. Uh, we want to pause for some Q&A, a chance for us to interact together, uh, something we like to do each week. And so uh, what questions do you have on your mind, uh, you're welcome to ask any, any question is fair game, including maybe a question that you came in today with, uh, just questions about God, perhaps. Uh, but if you could ask a question, I think that'll help our dynamic. And if you could make sure you define your terms, uh, use words that everyone understands, because we always have a good spiritually mixed crowd. Uh, but how can I help you? What can we talk about? What do you have on your mind? Q&A. Yeah, Jordan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, what do you do with um, certain struggles like anxiety or depression or uh, things that don't seem to fit neatly into the categories body and soul. And um, a couple ways to answer that. One is when the, when the Bible talks about our souls, it's not just talking about a location. It's talking about a part of us that sometimes is also described with other words like mind, like heart, like spirit, like soul. So this is all different parts of the intangible components of our humanity. And so I think things like uh, w things that afflict our minds or mental breakdowns or just worry, those kinds of things do end up, those are obviously thought life issues. But for instance, in Matthew 5, Jesus addresses worry as also a spiritual thing. And this is what I'm getting at. I think some of the things that you mentioned actually are crossover parts of our humanity. 
there's sometimes a physical bodily component and sometimes also a spiritual, moral, mental mix of a component. So for example, anxiety, oftentimes there is a physical disposition towards being a more anxious person by temperament or sometimes by chemical imbalance. And so there is a, an appropriate place for addressing things medically, but even with that, or maybe short of that kind of a need, it's often how you use your mind, kind of what are the thoughts that tend to circulate that add to your anxiousness, but sometimes it's also a spiritual thing as well. Uh, what, what, are, what are the things that I'm demanding in life that are making me anxious when I don't have? Uh, am I treating myself like uh, God, that I should have everything together and be able to control my future, and when I don't, it makes me wig out, when in fact, you know, that's a spiritual thing. Do you believe that you are not God and that you can actually trust the one who is? So there's uh, overlap, I think, for all of these different things, and I think... Uh, sort of wisely sorting through those different layers of how something like anxiety, that's my main example here, or depression um, kind of intersect or touch on all of those different parts. Um, yeah, I mean, I think maybe the point that I was trying to make is that it includes all of those, the integrated person, uh, wholeness, that's what God is after. It's a good question. Other questions? Yes, up top. Min, what's up? Saying, yeah. 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 Good. Um, the word sanctimonious and sanctification both come from the Latin root sanctus, and if you're in the music world, you know of a lot of sanctus songs. And that is uh, the same, that comes from the same word from the Greek. All of those come from the same root that means holy. So it just depends on what you want to do with that word holy. You can spin it positively, you can spin it negatively. The Bible has a positive view of it, right? It basically, I, I said holiness like Jesus was holy or being changed into the moral beauty or likeness of Jesus. In other words, holiness is being really, really different in the way that you love. Really, really different in the way that you love God. Really, really different in the way that you love other people. That's what Jesus was. Uh, holiness doesn't simply mean that uh, you're different. It means you're different in a way that makes you like the one who's perfect in love, Jesus. So that's the way the Bible talks about sanctification, becoming more and more like him. Well, the problem is, is that a lot of people treat holiness as arrogance. I'm just morally better than you. We have this expression, holier than thou. That's what sanctimonious means, right? We use that to say, well, here's a person that's being sanctimonious and high-minded about this and that. That's a holier than thou kind of person. So it's the same root, same core idea of holiness, just spun negatively because of the reality that often it is treated negatively. It is handled in a way that pushes people away or pushes people down. Others? Last one. Tanya. Yes. No. That's right. 
that's really good. Um, you might have noticed, well, may, maybe, you know, I'm talking about that sleep thing, and maybe some of you got mad at me. <laughs> right? You're like, I know, don't tell me that. I would do anything for more sleep, right? Um, but I'm trying to be committed just to give you my own personal background notes as I preach and teach. I, I'm trying not to undercut things that we find in Scripture by overqualifying them right away. So this is the place for us to work in. Okay, what, what does that look like? Um, and so I love the question because it is true a lot of times you may be in a season of life where sleep is hard to get or any number of different reasons where we are, not, we are limited in some ways beyond our control. And that can be frustrating and uh, it can be hurtful. Uh, it can be hard. So I think what's important is for us to understand the biblical principle in a way that actually keeps giving us sort of a, a hope for striving for that ideal and not giving up on it while still being patient with a season of life like having young kids times two, <laughs> right? Uh, twins, right? And th those kinds of things that make it really hard to get um, I still think it's important for us to keep laboring to think through what that can look like for us or for us to support one another in community to give that to one another or something, something. But to say that, because uh, here's the trouble, sometimes uh, a bad week becomes a bad month, becomes a season, becomes a lifestyle. And that's where we have to be careful where in your case, there are things that are beyond your control. Um, in other cases, we say they're beyond our control when they're really not. And that's why I wanna keep pressing us into consideration of these things. So I didn't really answer the question uh, because I don't think I can. I think we gotta just walk. We've gotta walk together and think through like, what does that look like to pursue something when you have limitations, right? Um, to enter into that frustration to keep hope and to keep persevering. Appreciate that. All right. Well, let's keep growing together. But I want to turn our attention to the Lord's Supper here. This is communion or also the Eucharist. And this is a time for us to engage with, a, with Jesus who was a savior of both body and soul. And so he says, look, I, I know you're a whole person. So I want to speak to you, not just your mind and your heart, your soul. I want to speak to your bodies as well. And through that, minister to your souls. In other words, he wants to give us physical things we can touch that remind us of his amazing grace. That remind us of his death and resurrection for us. His body and his blood shed for us, broken for us, here in bread and wine form. Let me say a word of prayer. Jesus, come now as you promised you would and bless this bread and this wine. Thank you so much for it. Please help us to receive it with grateful hearts. But thank you for generously seeking to assure us of your powerful commitment to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.